Welcome to the Happy Manifesto podcast. I'm Henry Stewart. I'm Maureen Egbay. And today we have Helen Sanderson on the podcast from Wellbeing Teams, who is uh, one of our most exciting people. Maureen, what are you finding joyful at the moment? I think for this week, it's about people showing up despite what's going on for them. And the reason why I say this is that, so as you may know, I'm an athletics coach, so my athletes training turning up for training, even though it's cold as it is. My apprentices on um, our program who show up despite what's going on for them in the week and my friends. So um, when I need them, they're there. Oh. I know. It's great. <laughs> so this encourages me to show up even more for them and more for everybody that I interact with. Well, the, what's exciting for me is tomorrow my granddaughter is coming to visit and she's in Sweden, in Malmo. Um, so I don't, we don't that often get to see her, but she's coming for the weekend and that's going to be fabulous because she just, she's just two years old and she's an absolute delight. Oh, bless her. She's going to get lots of cuddles from you. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So tell me, Henry, give me a tip. What's your tip this week? We're doing salaries at the moment. And my tip is that you should choose the CEO's salary. So what I, what I'm doing, and I did it last year, is I'm going to, uh, circulate throughout the staff uh, what I have done well this year, and I'm going to get them to decide what the increase should be for my salary. Okay, I better get my thinking cap on. <laughs> Which is very different to what you'd normally do with a CEO salary. And you have these people getting these enormous salaries because they're just chosen by salary committees rather than by the people. That's very powerful. That's powerful for the team. So my tip is, well, you know, I'm quite a feely, feely person. Yes, yes. So how many times in the day would you say that someone would ask you, how do you feel and really mean it? Oh, if they really mean it, I'm not, they often ask you how you feel. Yes. When they mean it, I don't know. And that's exactly it. It's like, you know, us in the UK, we're very polite. So usually it's a term <laughs> of politeness. So my tip is every day take at least five minutes to talk to someone and ask them how they feel and check in with them to see what's going on and really, really mean it because that's one way of actually building trust and making connections with your people. Okay, so genuinely how they feel. And, and actually listen to them, yes. Good one. Simple, but really effective, really powerful. So a big welcome to Helen Sanderson of Wellbeing Teams a self-managing organization that managed to achieve outstanding in CQC for its work caring with uh, the community. So, Helen, how did you manage to get that? <laughs> Wild. <laughs> um, I think blood, sweat and tears is the obvious answer to that. But I was determined to see whether we could demonstrate a new way of working in home care both by putting into practice all the person-centered practices that myself and my team have been training people in for a couple of decades, and to see if we could do it as a self-managing team. And that means working without bosses um, and people organizing themselves differently. So, of course, this was completely new to CQC at that time. <laughs> and I don't think that, I think we were the first in adult social care to be inspected by them. So new for CQC, scary for me. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So self-managing teams, how do you get them to work? My first experience of trying to get self-managing teams to work was after a friend of mine recommended a book by Frederick Nandu called Reinventing Organisations. 
massively inspiring. If I was going to list five books that changed my life, that would be one of them. But when I read it, Henry, I was just a tiny bit smug. So if there are three elements of, uh, of what Frederick describes as teal, self-management is one of them. Focus on purpose is another and bringing your whole self to work. Well, we'd done lots of work around one-page profiles, bringing your whole self to work. So that felt pretty standard stuff. To tell, us. tell us about that. One-page profile. One-page profile. Okay, a one-page profile is what it does on the tin. It's a one-page summary of who you are. And it has three headings, what people like and appreciate about you, what people like and admire or value about you, your characteristics, what matters to you, and what does good support look like? How do you bring your best self to work? How do you want to be supported by others in the workplace or at home? So those three sections. So we've done lots and lots of work around that. So I thought, well, self-management. We'd, we'd watched um, Cynex video on why. So we knew a bit about purpose and why. Um, so I thought, self-management, how hard can that be? Very hard is the answer. Very hard. It was like, I thought it was like adding a new app um, on your phone, but it wasn't. It was transforming the operating system. So for three years, I stepped back as the CEO of Sons and Associates, and myself and my team grappled with this new way of working without a boss. We learned Holacracy, which is one of the kind of technologies for self-management. It gives you lots of ways of working. So we, we grappled with that. So I learned through experience myself the first um, time round. And then um, I was approaching my 50th birthday. And my dad really sadly died when he was 53. And I said to myself, well, if I only had three years left like dad, would I want to carry on doing what I was doing? And I thought... Um, what would be the boldest thing I could do? And the boldest thing I could do at that stage was, could I put everything that we'd learned about self-management and about person-centered practices into practice in a new organization? And could we do it in home? And that's how we got started. So lots of learning about self-management from holacracy, from our own experience. However, it was completely different to do it with teams in home care. So I think the first year, we rewrote the handbook of how to do self-management six times because our learning was so steep. So what would you say would be a pitfall to look out for and what you would do differently? That's a great question. I think there's, there's a big difference between doing what we did, which is start an organisation from scratch, and organisations that we know of now that are moving in the direction of self-management. So if you're moving in this direction of self-management, never use the term self-management would be my first piece of advice. Because if you're a manager in an organization and you get the communication that says we're moving towards self-management, you will naturally think, therefore, they will not be a role for me. Um, and you'll either start looking for a, another job if you think this is really, really serious in the organization, or some people might be um, less constructive in their, their responses um, to that. So I think as soon as we use the term self-management, A, people don't understand it, um, and it might make them fearful that there isn't a role for them. Um, so I, I talk about how can we have greater trust and autonomy in teams and what can we do to move in that direction? Because I see it more of a, as a continuum of how can every team can do things that builds greater autonomy, greater trust within the team that actually is in the direction of self-management but we don't need to have the conversations about what is self-management and what does it mean for you. So can you give an example of what worked well in a self-managing team that wouldn't have worked if you had management? 
So before um, I joined you this afternoon for the podcast, I was working with a national charity. And one of the things that we're doing is supporting them to roll out something called confirmation practices. Now, confirmation practices were developed by um, my friend and colleague, Andy Brogan, who's a brilliant guy who supported us in wellbeing teams right at the beginning. And we're looking at this provider organisation to move from traditional supervision to support supervision, including confirmation practices. But the massive difference, so Maureen, say it was you and I, so um, traditional supervision might mean you might come, you might have a couple of questions, you might have a couple of things you want to talk about, but often it's about um, what's your annual leave looking like, um, what's your sickness record like, you know, sharing some information with you. And when people talk about performance improvement, I don't know anybody who has, can ever tell me that their performance has been improved by these kind of conversations. But if, if we were using confirmation practices, we'd have a set of, say, seven statements that are about your role. So it might be, I'm confident that um, I'm supporting the organisation to grow through my marketing, something like, like that. And you would give yourself a rating between one and five. And then I coach you to look at which of the statements you gave yourself the lowest rating for or what you want to focus on. And then I'd coach you then to come up with your solutions about how you can improve. So that might be going from two to three or from three to four. But it's a coaching role as opposed to me giving you advice about how to improve. The other massive difference is you're reviewing your performance um, rather than the manager saying, this is how I think you're doing. Not that there's never, and obviously getting feedback is really important, but that's a massive shift from how am I doing in my roles and where do I want to improve versus my manager telling me how they want to see me improve or just sharing information with me. I love that. I'm actually feeling more empowered as you talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Henry. So what would make a good complementary practice and what would make a bad one? So there are confirmation practices around roles. So what are the roles that that I occupy in my work? Um, And what does good look like for each of those roles? And what would I be doing in those roles? And then I can rate myself. We also use confirmation practices around something called team agreements, which is how do we want to show up together? So one of our team agreements in my team is we choose courage over comfort. We do what we believe is right, not necessarily what we believe is easy. So I would then rate myself on a scale of one to five about how well I thought I was doing in that and how I might want to improve. So a good confirmation practice statement is really clear. So it would mean the same to Maureen as it would to you, Henry, as it would to me. It's a bit like goal setting, getting really, really clear and precise. They usually start with I'm confident that. So there's um, an element of it that's subjective as well as an element of it that has got some metrics attached to it too. Um, and it relates to very specific parts of your role. So specific, clear, starts with I'm confident and is likely to have metrics attached to it. So one of my roles would have been as a storyteller in wellbeing teams. And if I'm doing my job really well as a storyteller, you'll see me showing up on LinkedIn. You'll see me doing weekly posts. You'd see me uh, meeting, retweeting and doing tweets about what I'm learning. You'd see me responding to comments um, that are made um, on, on LinkedIn about my work. So when I'm doing it really well, that's what I'm doing. When I'm not doing well at all, I haven't been on LinkedIn for two weeks and that's then I give myself like a one. And if I'm doing all those things, I'm more like to give myself a four or a five. And what would be the complimentary practice in that case? Um, I am confident that I am sharing learning about well-being teams with people who are interested on social media. 
Okay, so I've been doing this with some people at Happy, um, and one of them, their their confirmatory practice is things are joyful, and I'm on top of stuff. Is, is that a good lovely? One? That's <laughs> that's great. So I think um, if Andy was here, he would be encouraging us to write confirmation statements about only the things that we can control in our role. So um, if that that person can control whether they're joyful or not, and there's a whole thing that you and I both know about, Henry, about choosing your attitude, then, then that, that's that's perfect, isn't it, um, for that. So I, I choose my attitude, my attitude is joyful, and um, whatever the rest of that statement was sounded brilliant too. That sounds so awesome. So there was something that you said earlier that I really loved about bringing your whole self to work. How do I bring my whole self to work? <laughs> well, um, we used to introduce one-page profiles and I've d- described them, you know, in health and social care. And you remember about 10 years ago, I was introducing them in a hospice. And the nurse said to me that we were working with, she said, 10 years ago, I, I couldn't even tell people what my first name was. That would have been seen as unprofessional, let alone talking about bringing your whole self to work and talking about your grandchildren, your love of gardening, et cetera, et cetera. But bringing your whole self to work, I think, is acknowledging that we're humans first, we're, we're people first. And the more that we know about each other as individuals, the easier it will be for us to develop trusting relationships and have empathy for each other. So for me, you know, the fact that, that, that I love gardening, that I'm a mother of three daughters, that I'm learning to play the ukulele, um, that I'm not very good at it, that I'm terrified tonight because we're doing open mic for the first time, um, that I collect books that I know I have no chance of reading in my lifetime. And actually, there's, there's a name for that as well. So I heard about two or three books. Is there a name for that? There is. And I don't know what it is. I'm sure your listeners might know, but you can Google what's the, what's the name for buying more books than you can possibly read. I've got so them. many books. <laughs> I know. I think it's called Maureen. Maureen. Because <laughs> that is just me. <laughs> also, I don't like hints. I like people to ask me directly for what they want rather than me trying to second guess them. You know, that I thrive in an environment where there's high trust and I can rely on people giving me feedback and asking for feedback. So in my one-page profile, it would share those kinds of things. So Maureen, if you and I had worked together for six months, you would probably have a good guess at about 50 or 60% of that. If we've hung out at bars and drank together, you'd probably be a good guess at 70 or 80% of it. But if you join my team and I gave you my one-page profile, you would instantly know so much more about me. And it gives us co-tangers for conversations. So you might say, I loathe and detest gardening, Helen, but tell me about it. Or I've got a greenhouse and you'll find me every weekend in the greenhouse. What are you growing? So it enables us to have a quick start of conversations and build trust together. And of course, if we're using it with patients, if we work in the NHS, or if we're using it with people who support, if we're using adult social care, we shift a power balance from it's all right for me to ask you lots of questions about you, but you're not allowed to know anything about me. So you do with patients and with staff. Yes. So so I so in, in I think being person centred, being human with each other means that as colleagues we know about each other. But if we're serving people in health or social care, knowing what matters to each other, I think really matters. I remember from our, our conference because I, I had a conference. You spoke there and it was absolutely fabulous. And you talked about um, the one-page profile as a way to help with recruitment. Yes, brilliant. So we use them right at the beginning of our colleagues' journey with us. So rather than people sending us a CV, we ask them to send us a one-page profile and we give them instructions for filling it out. 
and a template with the headings. But if I'm on the recruitment team and say four other people, which it would include somebody who either uses services or a carer, we send them our one-page profiles. So when you meet me, you already know some stuff about me. And that, again, changes the power balance of who is this person who will determine whether I'm going to work in this organisation. Well, it's it's Helen. She's mad about gardening. She's got three daughters, etc. And I think that makes it a more welcoming and compassionate place to then have conversations about, about employment. And I think great recruitment, values-based recruitment, is a question of fit. Are you a good fit for us? And are we a good fit for you? And, and that's the conversation that we need to have. But is there a danger there that you might just... Uh... Recruit somebody because you because they were a gardener and you were a gardener. <laughs> well, luckily, I don't get the final say on who gets recruited. So, so it's a panel of five of us um, that would be making uh, that decision, and they'd be very quick to spot if I was expressing a bias that way. And obviously, in sort of safe recruitment and uh, recruitment around equality, we have lots of checks and balances to make sure that one person's um, preference for somebody um, isn't based on something like that. I love the idea that you actually share your one-page profiles with the interviewees. That's amazing. I think it makes a massive difference. But I was really shocked. That, so I was, one of my roles in recruitment, the first time we did recruitment, was I was the greeter. So I was stood on the road, working with people as they came. And I was really shocked when this guy came up to me and said, you must be Helen. <laughs> How do you know that? He said, well, your photo's on your one-page profile. So, so you know, <laughs> it, it, I think it helps put people at ease and levels the playing field in, in the recruitment process. I just like that idea of that it's not just about whether they're a right fit for you, but also, you know, it's vice versa, you know, so it's about actually coming together. Maureen, there's, there's something called a running away letter, a scare away letter that Lisa Gill um, introduced me to. And I've, I've been lucky enough recently to be um, approached by two charities about potentially joining their board of trustees. And, and I'm not on any board of trustees. And the one you know, fabulous national charity, brilliant reputation. And so I had my first interview with them and I was sat behind a desk and two people interviewed me. And after that, I I wrote um, a scare away letter to say, please don't take this process any further unless you're interested in somebody who wants to be part of innovation. And I gave a list of things that actually are my criteria for joining an organisation. And I think that that's the good fit thing. And they didn't take it any further. (laughs) <laughs> good for them good for me i think oh wow i'm taking notes just saying runaway letter i love that but in, in other recruitment when somebody's considering the job the existing team members write them a scary way letter to say you know this is a fantastic place to work but don't join us unless unless this 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 and this um, and for that to come from existing team members i think it's really powerful but it's also about being upfront as well, being really clear. Oh my goodness! If you um, if you don't, like my friend um, Jacqueline Fogel's got some fantastic research on, on recruitment because we we looked at values based recruitment because one of the things that was different about well being teams is we didn't recruit from inside of health and care; we recruited much more broadly than that. And um, so we'd have like bar managers and nursery nurses and other people come and join us, which was which was amazing. So there are significant costs of losing people in the first six weeks and then two months and then a year. So the costs of recruitment are massive, but also the costs of somebody staying who shouldn't are massive in terms of team morale and how the organisation works. So I think, you know, recruitment needs to be a massively front-ended process, both from um, expense and getting the wrong, the wrong people. So I think taking a time to do that well. But in our sector, speed is seen as a really good thing. 
Um, but actually, you risk getting people for whom this is not a good fit, who will leave when you've paid for them through induction, you know, when they've they've met people a few times as well. So I think recruitment is so, so important. Now, I have a thing about recruitment interviews that I I believe you shouldn't ask your interviewee any questions. No, I agree. In, in the interview. Well, I, I don't think interviews are a good thing per se. So we did workshops. So if you're recruiting people to be part of a team, why would you decide if they're a good fit for your organisation just based on one-to-ones? Because I want to see people perform in a group um, to know whether they are yes. a good fit or not. We want to see how positive and supportive they are Absolutely. of others, don't we? Absolutely. Because you can prep for interviews. There's loads of books and, and videos <laughs> that says, if you ask this question, answer it this way. That is no way to find out whether someone's a good fit for your organisation, particularly if they're working in teams and most people are working in teams. Absolutely. Okay, now earlier you talked about trust and autonomy. Now, of course, with a self-managing organisation, that may in it, that makes it almost impossible that you can't have trust and autonomy, I guess. So can you give us a, some examples of where, where there was trust and autonomy in wellbeing teams? Well, I think that you then rely on the processes of the way you work to create a scaffolding or a framework that supports trust and, uh, and autonomy. Because I was the registered manager for wellbeing teams in its early days. And what that meant is um, I would go to prison if something went badly wrong. So it, it's an incredibly responsible role. So here I was um, being the registered manager and doing things for which we couldn't have, have managers. And I remember um, CQC, the regulated body for health and care, does an, an annual inspection um, usually, and about six weeks before that, you get something called the PIR, which is the um, which is information that they want before they come and inspect you. And when I got that email, Emily, I couldn't open it for three weeks. I was so scared. <laughs> so terrified of it <laughs> because one of the questions it asks you is how many supervisions have happened over the past six weeks. And of course, we weren't doing supervision. So, so like it increased my fear about what they were going to find. So confirmation, we replaced traditional supervision with confirmation practices. I think the, the best example of trust really is in the way that we structured um, our meetings. So we took some practices from Holacracy, um, their tactical meeting process, and we used that. So we'd have weekly team meetings. And one of the things that you do in this particular kind of weekly team meeting is you ask for what you need. So we had to trust people to bring issues to the table, which is, and the question is, you know, what's getting in, your, in the way of you doing your best work? And attention is either something that's getting in the way of you doing good work, or it might be something that you see that could improve the way you work and you would expect people to bring that. And we'd also look at metrics together. So in traditional organisations, the manager looks at metrics, makes some decisions about them, and then issues changes. Well, the transparency of information and self-managed team is that we'd have a big poster up that said, you know, were there any medication errors in the past two weeks? Were there any incidents or accidents in the past two weeks? You know, um, how many social media posts have we done on Facebook? So all of that information would be transparent. And that once a month, we'd then do a review of, of our learning. So based on, for example, if we'd had any incidents or accidents or, or a medication issues, we would do like what we call a four plus one. What have we tried? What have we learned? What are we pleased about? What are we concerned about? What do we need to do next? Or, or some kind of review. So I think self-management is about having practices like that 
that means that we can be confident in what's happening because we see our colleagues bringing tensions, we review our learning together. Yeah, bringing tensions. I know, I know that's a self-managing organisation <laughs> uh, thing. What, what does attention mean? So traditional meetings, the manager would typically set the agenda and the agenda would be, we're going to talk about this, this and this, and that there'd often be one or two words. And in tactical meetings, there is no set agenda. We're asking people to reflect where they are now on what's getting in the way of them doing their, their best work. So attention, it could be some information that you need that you don't have. So your attention might be, I need this information. I need it by the end of the day. Um, Maureen, I need it from you. Um, can I ask you to provide this information for me? So that would be addressing attention in a tactical meeting. Or attention might be, um, I've got a challenge with a family. They're a really lovely family, but there's this issue that's getting away. Can we hear from everybody about your suggestions about how I can deal with that issue? So attention might be looking for ideas from your colleagues, looking for information from your colleagues, or solving a problem um, together. So normally you might go to your manager with that, but in yes, this case you absolutely. go to... absolutely. Yeah. A, a really good point. So the things that you would usually phone the office and ask your manager for, it's a process of, of getting that information from your, your colleagues. And that there's occasionally information that you might need from somebody in that kind of role. So it's not that... So you'd have a well-being leader who acted as the team's coach and me as the registered manager. So you might need some information for example, about something that CQC is doing and you would come to me. But actually most problems, 95% of them, are ones that the intelligence, the, the wisdom in the room can help you figure out for yourself. Fantastic. So tell me something. Have you had feedback from staff, from your teams, to say how well this is and you know how they feel about this approach? Yes. So the um, people vote with their feet, don't they, it, it is one way of looking at it. So um, the most recent wellbeing teams were in Thurrock, um, in home care, and it was a partnership between us and the local authority. And the local authority also delivered their own home care. So we had a sort of comparison that we could look at. And I think it was the director of, one of the directors did some research to look at how often people went into hospital, um, sickness levels and retention levels. And they found that there was a two-thirds less sickness in the wellbeing team compared to the rest of home care, you know, and retention was like two-thirds higher as well. So I think that's a really good indicator of it. At the beginning, we used something called PECON, um, which was a way of doing like staff satisfaction questionnaires, but we did it every month, you know, early on to find out what was working and not working from team members' perspective. And then the results came to the team. So the team would get the results from their team. And then one of the questions would be, based on what we've learned from PECON, what do we need to do or do differently? So we, we paid a lot of attention to the feedback about the detailed changes that people wanted to make. And But rather than the manager making those changes or you know, the, the coach, we said to the team, this is what you're saying to each other. What do you want to, to do differently? But the brilliant thing is in the CQC reports, the CQC um, asks team members for their feedback. Um, and the feedback from team members was overwhelmingly positive from perhaps everybody. But one person who had come from a previous job in home care, and only 10% of our staff had come from health and social care, said, um, it's not just that you're asked your opinion is you're expected to share your opinion and be part of the changes made here. And I think that was, was something that I was delighted to hear. That's glorious. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great example. So thank you so much for sharing that. So Helen, your three tips for happy workplaces, what are they? 
So um, I'm big into research, Henry. So um, I was reading a book by Professor Jeffrey Pepper, and the book's called Dying for a Paycheck. And it's all about well-being at work. And a lot of us think well-being at work is about having yoga classes or nap pods or all the stuff that we read from Google and other places. And he said, no, it's two things. It's autonomy and it's social support. So I think anything that we can do that supports greater autonomy at work and greater social support. And I'm a big fan about of Brenny Brown. And one of the things that she talks about is how important it is to talk about feelings at work. And if we don't talk about feelings and express them, they will appear in the workplace in other ways. So I think one of the things I think is great about the kind of meetings that we do is that we start with a check-in. And often that's a feelings check-in. So we'd be asking everybody right at the beginning of the meeting to use one word to describe how they feel. Now, at the beginning, people would say things like okay and fine. And okay and fine aren't feeling words. So, so we downloaded a feelings chart from nonviolent communication, which we're a big, big fans of. So we put that on the screen and say, choose um, a feeling to des- a word to describe how you're feeling. And then more if you say something like exhausted or angry or upset, we'd then say, is there anything we can do to support you around feeling like that more? And so you can be fully present for the meeting. So I think being able to talk about feelings and ask people what they need to be fully present is, is a really powerful thing to do in meetings. So autonomy, social support and feelings, is that? Um, well, it's autonomy and social support of what we need to do to be well at work. One way of thinking about social support is doing things like one patient profiling. So we know who we are as individuals, but also being able to talk about our feelings at work and doing that in meetings is a good way to get started. And I think the other thing is... Um, being clear about how we want to show up in the workplace. So, you know, having agreements about the importance of being on time would be one for me, or if you're going to be late, letting people know ahead of time. But also things like being courageous and asking for feedback and um, statements like that, and then reviewing them. How well am I doing? Using something like confirmation practices. So bring your whole self to work, and one-page profiles are a great way of doing that. Be prepared to talk about feelings and feelings checking in meetings, a way of doing that and let's agree how we want to be together in the workplace and team agreements are a great way of doing that so those would be my three top tips excellent thank you so much helen this has been a fabulous podcast and thank you so much you're very welcome thank you for inviting me oh that was so awesome there was so much in there. There was, wasn't there? Yeah, lots of goodness. What particularly stood out was the sharing who you are with your interviewees. I mean, I'm, I've never heard of that happening before. Um, we must do that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that's great. That one-page profile and getting their information and sharing us, I think that's very powerful. And and I'd love confirmatory practice. As I, as I heard Helen talk about it on the Lisa Girl uh, podcast and so I, I've started doing it myself I didn't realize you had to do seven of them though I've I've only been doing one <laughs> but I suppose you can adapt it you know to what meets you you know yeah absolutely like you I love the confirmation statements so it's coming from a place of you showing up and how you're showing up so I think it's really really clear and then being coached to help you raise your game in areas where you haven't scored yourself high so that's actually Scoring yourself, again, giving the accountability back to the person. And then that part, I think, towards the end where she talked about how you want to show up at work. And uh, we, uh, here at Happy, we, we have that thing of that, um, what is it, to be? 
how do you want to be? Oh, how do you want to be? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have that. But then to hear it also to be is like, how do you want to show up for work? Imagine doing that every morning, how you want to show up for work. And then you just step into that. And just on that to be point, because listeners might not know about it. So as well as the to-do list, we have a to-be list. The way I used to do um, to-be is especially when I need to let's build up my confidence. How do I want to set myself up for the day? What do I want to choose? What do, uh, what do I want to achieve? And then by doing that, it's that what's necessary for me? To, how is it necessary for me to be to be able to achieve those goals? So do I need to be more confident? Do I need to be a, a great listener? What do I need to be to be able to achieve my goals and achieve those outcomes? Okay, that's the end of this podcast. Bye for now. See you next time. Keep on creating joy at work.